This is the photograph, an aerial photograph of Dhumbrishja, and as you can see, there are some buildings visible on it uh, from the aerial photograph. Now, from the landward side at present, it's not possible to see any uh, on the ground, to see any buildings. One can see heaps of stones. But there are accounts from the last century, accounts from 1802 and then the middle of the century, which describes buildings with doorways, actual doorways, to be seen there. And the location of the buildings on the western edge, for instance, and of a large building in the centre with a doorway, as you can see on the photograph, where they're not visible from the ground at present, uh, probably because of a lot of erosion on the landward side from Doombrishja. They are visible on the photograph here, and those accounts are not just um, make-believe from the last century. They are actual accounts, and they've been verified by these photographs. And what we want to do is to get out there and see what these buildings are like, measure them, and possibly be able to suggest um, a date for the buildings, and therefore a date after which the, the uh, dune must have collapsed, the, the, the land must have collapsed. Before the time of aerial photography now, what, what could people have seen from the mainland? Well, they could. The accounts uh, from the last century uh, are so clearly, uh, agree so clearly with this uh, aerial photograph here that obviously they could see a lot more then than we can see now. At the moment, you can only see some rubble stones on it, but could not certainly identify buildings there without this photograph. Have you got your own theories? Um, I have. If this is, uh, as it appears to be on the photograph, if it is a long rectangular building, uh, as it seems to be on the photograph there, it would appear to be uh, that it's likely to be a medieval building and that therefore the collapse is quite late. In other words, that the, the reference in history to the collapse of a dune in this barony of Tiroli. Now, it doesn't mention the exact headland. It gives it a different name, Dune Ross. Uh, but the mention of a collapse in 1393 of what was obviously a major collapse that had got into the annals, um, would seem to be uh, borne out by the building, by a long rectangular building there, and that that is the truth rather than the folklore that it was St. Patrick in his confrontation with the pagan god Crumduff who broke it off. So that in a choice between, say, the 5th century and the 14th century, um, at the moment, it's looking like the 14th century. What we hope to show today is uh, is to be able to, to make some comment one way or the other on that by getting out there and examining it. Well, what is the legend, and how old is the legend? Um, well, the legend is a very common one of a confrontation between Patrick and the pagan god Crumdoff. I leave that to my father to, to deal with the folklore side of it. Patrick Colford, can we talk to you? You're a man who has been looking at Dune Bristol for, what, 60 years? No, yes, and 70 years, I suppose, since I saw it first. And you, you know the legend that's, that's common in this area. What is that legend? Well, uh, the legend is common to all over Ireland. I mean, it's been gathered in the folklore and uh, it's been published. But the legend I heard, I, heard, I got it from my, na- my next-door neighbour. And uh, um, this was that after Patrick finished on Croke Patrick, he decided to, vi- to visit Fohill. Now, Fohill is within about four, uh, five miles of the Dune, Dune Patrick. And uh, when he came to Fohill, he heard about this chieftain named Crumduff, who was uh, very severe on the people. And uh, he decided to come and try and convert him to Christianity. 
and the day he uh, came towards the dawn, uh, Krumdorf uh, had two dogs at that time, and he set them on people to tear them apart. And when he heard the party was approaching, he whistled for his dogs. Now, the dogs were hunting with his son in a place called Glenlossary, that's a little glen near Beldaric. So he must have a, a great whistle because it's about six or seven miles there. At any rate, the dogs were supposed to come, and uh, when Patrick saw them approaching, he made a circle around himself with his crozier. And when the dogs then came to the edge of the circle, instead of attacking him, they lay down and they licked his feet. Now, the old channel, he, Michael Reagan Belderig, who told me that, he used to say in Irish, Lysid Shisegechosa. That was the, how he told the story. Well, then, when Crumb saw, saw that the dogs were a failure, he retreated towards the big fire he had, uh, into which he threw people at different times. And uh, when, Crum, or when Patrick approached the fire, Crumb was standing beside it, ready to throw Patrick in. Patrick picked up a stone put the sign of the cross on it and threw it into the fire. And the fire went down through the ground and left a huge hole there that is still there on the on the headland. And it's known as Polnishan Chini or Polnishan Thinne. There are two different uh, mm. names for it. But in my place, out in Belderic, they call it Polnishan Chini. Uh, that's associating it with the, with the fire. Uh, Patrick Crumdorf uh, uh, then retreated into his castle, and uh, when Patrick came, he wouldn't allow him in. So Patrick went back from the castle a bit, and he struck the ground with his crozier, and he cut Crumdorf off from the land. And they said that he he was on the island there until he died. He was eaten by midges. <laughs> That's how they described his end. Martin Downs, you're, you're setting off for the island with us. What do you hope to find there? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not very clear at this point. A big thing from my point of view is that um, opportunity has arisen to go out there and to log what's on that island. Now, how important that may be, I have no way of knowing. And I won't really have any true idea of what I need to do on the island until I go and see it. It's very difficult. You can't really see much of the top from the mainland, as I think you may know yourself. Um, so I'm going to go out there and record what's there. Later, I may think of doing comparisons between it and areas on the mainland, but at this point I have no way of knowing what I should be doing. Now, we're shortly going to take off for Dunbrishta in a helicopter. I hope so. Does that, does, that, does that worry you at all? Not, not in the least. I, I'm not the slightest bit worried about taking off or landing on it. Uh, no, I have no fear of heights, thanks be to God, and... For that reason, I suppose, I'm, <laughs> I don't worry about it. Did you ever uh, think, Patrick, that you would be able to land on it one day? Well, no, no. I always had a, a lo- I always looked at it and said, well, it would be lovely to land there, just now for the sake of finding out what ruins and what um, was left there from the old times. And um, I never dreamt that I'd ever get the chance. I hope I'd be able to make it today. <laughs> We're sitting now, waiting now on Don Patrick Headland, and a lot of people have gathered to see this takeoff of this expedition to this stack or this island which hasn't been landed on or stood on by human beings for about 600 years. 
and somewhere now in the distance this helicopter is coming in and he's going to land here on the headland and take the archaeologist Seamus Caulfield and the biologist Martin Dans and the RTE crew onto the island. It's only about 80 yards across and as a matter of fact somebody once drove a golf ball there and we hope when we get on the island apart from any archaeological finds we hope to find that missing golf ball. The helicopter is coming in now pretty low over Dune Brishta and now he's coming close to us and presumably he's going to try to land in the car park on the headland if he can find space among all the cars that have come here this late afternoon it's just after half past five in the evening a sunny evening on the headland not too much wind though the weather was very very windy earlier very dark very gloomy now it's brightened up there's a blue sky and it looks like as if we're going to have a nice trip across to Bridgeton and be able to do the work that the archaeologist and the biologist want to do red helicopter is coming in now and he's coming down right here into the car park I must say the archaeologists and the biologists are very excited about this this is something they've both been dreaming about for a long time and obviously their ambition is about to be fulfilled the chopper is coming right down now he's landing now and in a few minutes we hope to be aboard take off on this voyage of discovery to a little bit of land which somebody said looked like a piece of layer cake dropped in the ocean which hasn't been stood upon for 600 years and the helicopter now his, his engines are slowing down and we're going to go aboard in a few minutes and hopefully take off for Doombrishton What I'm going to do is go out. <coughs> I'll do an approach. I'll come to a hover. There's not much room on it. There's little buildings, or obviously little ruins of that. So as I came over, and I'll lower this thing gently onto the ground. But I can't afford to lower it its full weight down because I don't know what the surface is like. So I'll be holding enough pitch to keep it light. For that reason, I don't want anybody moving until Alec, when I give him the word. We'll get out and he'll open the door and remember there's not much room when you get out don't race away from the helicopter and fall into the tide <laughs> so get out you know gently and um, firmly if that's the proper word and do whatever it is you have to do and then stand and sort of far away but not far enough away so that when I do lift this thing off the ground it'll clear the island not okay. We're lifting off now for the island of Dunbrishta and as well as wearing our seat belts where all of us also wearing life jackets and the pilot has told us that the the wind on the island will be about 25 to 30 knots we're now up over the headland 
leaving the car park far behind. And it's only about 80 yards across to the island, which broke off from the mainland many centuries ago. And the island itself is about, they say, the size of a football pitch. And we're now over the sea. And the pilot is making a sharp turn, and it's a, a very beautiful evening now. We've chosen a good day or a good evening, apart from the wind. And on the right now, I can actually see, I can actually see the, the island. We're coming right into it. And the pilot is obviously trying to judge where he's going to make his landing. He won't be able to touch right down on the island. He'll have to come very close, and then we'll have to clamber down. He's making another turn now. Hoping he can get it on the next one. It's now on our left-hand side. He's now almost over it. And I think he's going to come down now and try to get us off the helicopter. Apart from the 30-knot wind that he says is blowing on the island, we'll also have to guard against the 50-mile-an-hour 50, 50 blades of the, the helicopter. A great flock of seagulls have just risen up from the sea, obviously scared by the sound of the, the helicopter rotors. is coming quite close now and I think he's been buffeted a little bit by the wind up here the cliffs down from the island <clears throat> are pretty sheer and uh, I'm told they're about 150 feet from the island top of the island down to the sea which is quite calm a few white caps but relatively calm and we can now see we're so close to Doombrichta now we can see the wall of the the settlement whatever it may be the archaeologist is going to find out we can see the wall of the settlement what's left of it he's now right over right over the island a couple of feet now from where he's hoping to put us down it's alarmingly close to the side of the uh, the cliff about six feet i would say so we have to get out on the other side and even there it seems to be pretty narrow i would say the whole island looks about from the helicopter about 20, maybe 25 feet across. But maybe it seems as narrow as that. I think he's actually trying to get a right down on the, on the ground. But the problem is how we are going to be able to get out of this helicopter on such a narrow, such a narrow strip. I think the, the island is something in the shape of a triangle, so I think we're at the, the narrowest point. He's got the doors open and the, the co-pilot has now stepped out and he's only trying to get us out now. keeping the rotors going because he's, he can't afford to stay here. 
is going to leave us on the island for some hours and then hopefully come back and collect us. And now the doors are open. We're unfastening our seatbelts and the first man out, the first man out is the man who's waited all these years to stand on this little piece of land. Not only did he get out, he sat down. And next down is Eve Holmes, our photographer. Eve is out, and she's going to photograph the rest of us now, the archaeologist and the biologist, and then the rest of the RTE team. They're all out safely, landing very inelegantly on the grass. That was a very tricky landing. We're all out. We're all we're all stretched here on the grass, and the island is much narrower than we thought it was. And the helicopter is now making off again. But we're all here, except the sound operator lost some of his batteries. I think they blew over the cliff. Patrick Caulfield, now you're the first man to have set foot on Dune Bridge for probably 600 years. And for a man of 77, isn't that your age? 77 You made, you made yes. a, a, a quite a good landing. A very good landing. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit. Um, you rolled over, but quite <laughs> well, good. We had to do that, <laughs> yes. How did it feel? Well, it's a wonderful, a wonderful uh, feeling to be able to say that I landed on Dune Bridge I'd been looking at it for 70 years or more, but I never dreamt that I would ever see the day that I'd be able to stand on it. Does it seem yeah. smaller to you than it did from the mainland? Well, um, now that you're on it, the, from the pic, the picture seemed to be much smaller than it is now. I think it's larger than it showed from the picture. And then you thought it would be. I was afraid we wouldn't be able to have room at all. And well, it's not. I mean, it's 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 narrow. It's very. Oh, narrow. it's very narrow. Very narrow. But it's more extensive, more uh, uh, longer than I thought it would be. Yes. But you have to watch your step, obviously. Oh, well, you can't. You must, you must uh, watch your step, and you shouldn't do it have a, a point of touching and you're walking around here in the dark. <laughs> no, I don't know how they ever built houses out here. I mean, it's hard to imagine what kind of times were in it when people had a house to see it. Because I couldn't see a family being reared around on the edges of these cliffs. Are you happy, too, that your son landed with you? Well, I am. I'm very happy that uh, Seamus had the chance of coming here. And well, he, he, he's always, he was always interested in this place. He's been so, as curious as you were. Oh, he was. Once he knew that there were some ruins on it, he was very anxious to get out here. Seamus, we walked across the hum- these hummocks of, of, of grass, aren't they? It's the most extraordinary formation. It's a most extraordinary growth. I've never seen anything like it, an ungrazed area. to have this, uh, this type of grass growing up so long here. I'd say that Martin is going to be very interested in this. Uh, but what I'm really interested in is that the buildings are so well preserved here and so high. I knew there were traces of buildings, but I didn't imagine that there was anything as well preserved. For instance, just at this, um, up at this end of the, of the uh, dune here, which we, are, which we are now, I knew there was a house here, but I didn't realise that the few stones on the edge here were so well preserved that it preserved such a, a fine wall. Well, there's another wall here. What, what are these here? What's this? Well, you see, look at this here. This is this is a find we haven't... No, this is the, the only... I wasn't hoping for a find, but if I was to, to ask for a find, that's the very one I'd look for. What is it? It's, it's a quern. It's a, a rotary quern. And it happens that I've... Uh, they're my main... Those were my, my main study early on. My master's thesis, actually, were, were, was completed on these. So that's the one find. Right, if I was well, looking des- for a find, that's des- the one I'd be looking describe for. Describe it for me. 
um, a circular stone with a hole in the middle used for grinding corn but often also ending up in graveyards or on monastic sites and used as burial slabs and here well here it's sitting up on the wall it, it would appear to be left there as if it was marking something uh, and it's rather unusually displaced you see the way it's broken here and, and part of it it's over to one side there way, it's, yeah. it's broken in half and one part of it over to one side now what would have moved it like that I don't know would it be we're only here about the wall perhaps I don't know we're only here about five minutes and we've still to try and figure out you know what state the buildings were in at the time that that uh, it broke off from the uh, that, it, that it broke from the mainland we'll just have to try and and uh, figure that out but this is the most unusual if I was to to ask for one find out here I'd that ask would for satisfy you yes that would be enough that would be enough yes and there it is any at this stage any idea at all as to how it may have got in this place in this position not in the position on the wall there obviously when this was a monastic site here or a religious site um, they don't spend all their time praying they obviously have to live here as well and querns are a very common find on uh, on monastic on religious sites so it, it would be quite you know, quite to be expected here. And among the stone finds, I suppose among finds, it's one of the things that I should have thought of that could be uh, that could be lying around. You didn't expect it. But there it. it is. I didn't expect it. I never thought of it until I just saw it now. Martin Dance, we're only about 10 minutes on the island, so perhaps it's a little soon to ask you what, what you found or what you're looking for. Well, I've just had a quick look around here. It's not too unlike what I might have guessed was here. Uh, there's much less sea pink than I had judged, though. Um, there's a lot of this grass, this fescue. Uh, and surprisingly, it has, it has built up a tremendous depth of peaty material under it. And that's what's impressing me more than anything at this point, is just the volume. There's maybe, oh, perhaps in some places, a metre of this stuff. And why is uh, that? Overlying the soil. Well, this grass does grow like that. It does do that. But it has been undisturbed here. And it seems to have gone on. You can see yourself it has encased some of the walls around. It's just that you don't see it like this very often on the, on the mainland. Um, aside from that, there are a lot of plants that almost anyone could have forecast would be here. I see sea beet here, uh, close relative of sugar beet. Um, it usually grows at the seaside. That's not surprising. I see broadleaf dock here. A lot of plants, just as you might find at almost any seaside in this part of the country, any rocky seaside. There's so, nothing, nothing flourishing that you wouldn't find, say, on the mainland? There's nothing flourishing here that I've seen so far that you wouldn't find on the mainland. There are a lot of uh, insects um, and insect-like animals here too, and I'll just have to uh, try making a collection of some of those. There's an, an amount of lichen or lichen, this yellow material, uh, on the walls... Uh, it's mainly a species called Calaplaca, and again, it's one that you find at the seaside. There's, there's uh, nothing very amazing about it. What's interesting me just at the moment, I was thinking about it just before you came up there, um, is the if we can get any sort of dating for uh, these walls. Yes. Uh, it might be possible for us to uh, make inferences about how fast this grass can accumulate. Um, the peaty material under it simply by measuring it up along the walls. Patrick, you've been a couple of hours on the on the stack now. Uh, have we been that length? We have. I didn't realise it was so long, that length. Obviously, obviously you're yeah. enjoying yourself. Oh, I'm enjoying it. It's a wonderful experience for anybody. To think that we're standing in a place that nobody stood for 500 or nearly 600 years. 
Do you think you've been of some help to your son, Seamus, on the... Well, uh, I, I always had an interest in archaeology and I suppose I gave him an interest in it when he was a young lad. I pointed out all the old remains and ruins and traces of the past that were around the Belderga area, of course, and then he got, he, took, he got an interest in it. And later on then, he, he took it up as his career. So he's done quite a lot of work in the archaeological uh, field back in the Belderga area and back in Erdos, all over the County Mayo. Well, from what he's discovering this evening on the, on the stack... It may be that perhaps the legend itself may not be true, but the period may be indeed right. Well, the the, the date of the the collapse of the, the joining land between this place and the, the mainland is difficult to think of. The, we're out of the mainland now, but uh, the, that date I think would be fairly true or re, uh, right, because MacFarbish's annals were pretty accurate so he gave the date as uh, I think I told you before as um, 1393 yes that'd be a hundred years before Columbus sailed for America so it's quite a bit back and local people there may not have been far out at all in their estimations there was of course there was the the, Krumdorf actually lived in this area and he probably dwelt out here too in the early days of you Christianity. Oh, I do, because uh, usually these tales are handed on for generations, you know, and they're actually usually correct. Now, the name, the old man, I think I told you before too, or maybe I didn't, uh, the old man beside me, he gave the name of the chieftain who lived here as Lyodrishk. Now, I got an old map, a very old map, and this place is um, marked on the map as... Dun Diodrishk. So the old man may, may have been uh, um, that he didn't take up the name correctly, but uh, he had the, the, the end of it correct anyway. And then he, I have seen the name in a few other places and it was given as Diodrishk, G E O. You have D E O, G E O, and Elio Drishk for the chieftain who lived here. You're fond of lore about this part of the world. And you've had no problem walking about the island, what there is in it? No, well, you see, since I was able to walk, I've been out in the mountain with a gun. And, you know, if, if you've ever travelled over the, the bogs of Mayo with a gun, you know, that's the kind of hummocks Terrain. you have to travel over, you see, and you get used to it. And we develop a kind of a sailor's wag when we walk to on account of that. Seamus, you've been very busy now for about an hour and a half with your, your tapes and your measuring rods, and now you're busy with your camera. What are you finding? Well, obviously, with a two-hour time to spend on here, there's no possibility of making a proper survey. What we're trying to do is to photograph as much as possible and get the basic measurements here on the buildings. Uh, what is clear is that um, this is not where we're, where we're sitting now. is not a simple house. There is one long wall which runs right across the island and then jutting out from it, uh, there are two walls which curve around and form a building in, in front of this long wall cutting across the island here. There seems to be much the same type of thing but at right angles to it behind us here as well but largely collapsed into the largely collapsed into the sea but quite a bit of it standing there. So what we're sitting in now which has the, the, the shape of almost a room Yes it appears it, it is possibly a large house possibly even a church building um, 
there are certain things which I had hoped we would be able to verify having come out here and that would be whether it was mortar built or not. Uh, I still don't know. There's no trace of any mortar now but the way in which the walls have collapsed inwards on themselves would suggest almost as if a rubble uh, a rubble core has disappeared, has been washed out of the walls here completely in this exposed position. So it may be that there was a certain amount of mortar building, I don't know. It certainly has not uh, got a, a regular building to it, medieval feel to it. I think it could be very much earlier and in fact I now have very grave doubts about the 1393 date. I think that uh, that what's appearing here has all the appearance of being, uh, of being earlier to me. How uh, earlier? I'm not saying, I haven't an idea, I haven't a clue. Um, it does look as if um, uh, I think that, that it would be you know at home on a monastic site that, that uh, there is one slab upright over there at the end of that wall there there's another small slab over there uh, it has the appearance of you know a quite normal monastic site or, or religious site here and obviously when you look at you know what's just left out here so far out in the sea and in this expanse of water between us and the mainland there and then other buildings in on the on the landward side this could have been a very important a very large site now of course virtually totally gone well as far as the, as the famous legend goes as far as the legend go, goes the legend is wide open again uh, and quite a possibility because as regards the date it could be possibly not as early as St. Patrick but Pretty soon early after. Christian rather than medieval yes pre-1000 rather than post-1000 AD. In the time you've, you've got left now, what are you going to do? I'm going to whip around as rapidly as possible with the ranging rod which I have here, or with the, the staff which I have here, uh, to give a scale to the features. The only detail, the best detail that we can take back, I think, is by rapidly photographing as much as possible of this. Well, we're, go we're going to have to leave reasonably soon, I imagine, when the helicopter comes back for us. Will you be able to decide from what you bring back in the nature of notes and photographs a little more than you, you're able to tell me now. Uh, I possibly will. Not a great deal. Not a great deal more. Uh, there is nothing medieval. There's no medieval feel about this. There is nothing medieval that I can see. Uh, that I can see here. I think uh, if we had found medieval buildings here, for instance, one could say, well, the collapse certainly was later than that. All we can say about it now is that you know you're talking about a date after which it must have happened, and with the type of buildings we're looking at here. I don't see anything, you know, that we can put a finger on a particular date for this. Um, rather vague, I'm afraid. After two hours, just over two hours on Dunbrishta, on this stack, the archaeologist and the biologists have done what they can, as much work as they can, and the helicopter is now coming back to land. right over us now this Bell twin engine helicopter and hopefully we can hopefully we can get it on board again just as successfully as we were able to land two and a half hours ago we're all hiding in the hummocks now hoping we're out of the way of the rotor blades and he's managing to come down he's within about three feet now of the surface of the island. The doors are open and I think we're all right. I think we're all we're we're going to be able to take off again and be back in a matter of minutes on the mainland. Seamus Caulfield you've landed safely. Uh, how would you sum up <laughs> the expedition? 
um, very successful, tremendous to have got the opportunity and, and uh, very grateful to RTE that we did get the opportunity to get out there and to, um, to see the buildings. As I said to you out there, it is impossible to do, to do a detailed survey, but we have got a lot of photographs. We've got a lot of uh, uh, some basic measurements from it. We have an idea of what the buildings are like. Um, they do look much earlier than I anticipated. I didn't think that those large buildings would look quite as primitive as they did. Um, and there is, of course, a lot more buildings out there than, than can be seen even on the aerial photographs. There's, uh, they're much more extensive. And then there was the one find, of course. Do you know now what the dimensions of that stack are? Uh, yes, well, from the um, very high altitude aerial photographs, we had estimated uh, something between 50 and 60 metres long and about 20 metres wide. And that's, while it doesn't look that from the cliff top, that's what the measurements turned out to be, actually. So, so it was the, accurate? Yes, it was accurate. So that our, while it looked much smaller, uh, the measurements that we had in mind were uh, were correct for it. Now the building across the uh, the centre of it is about 11 metres long. Um, it's interesting that it's about the same size as the church, which the church ruins would survive on the landward side here on the in on the mainland. And I just wonder if my, you know, an idea I had before going out. Uh, seeing that the dimensions are so close for the, uh, between the two buildings, between the building out there and the one in here on the mainland. That it might have been if, part of it. That's not so much part of it, but that seeing that this was a place of pilgrimage for a very, very long time, that if the original site of the pilgrimage outside collapsed, did they in fact transfer it to in the, onto the land there. here? There is a folk story about Crumdoff and St. Patrick, which to a certain extent suggests that there is uh, a story that Patrick was building a church out on the headland, out on the Dune Bristia, and that every night Crumdoff came along and knocked it down, and that he eventually cut Crumdoff off, left him out there, and built the church in on the landward side here. That's a version of the Crumdoff story which, uh, you know, which may contain a germ of truth in it about the building of two churches. It's now eight months since we were out on Doonbrishta and you're sitting there, Seamus and Martin, surrounded by your notes and your findings. Have you had any reason to change your mind about what you said when you stepped off the helicopter? Well, apart from the problem of um, eight months later, finding it hard to, to recollect exactly what I said in the excitement of getting out onto Doonbrishta, um, as far as I can remember, uh, my conclusion just before we left the uh, we left the rock was that the buildings could be quite early because they showed no evidence of of any um uh, mortar building in them they were very primitively built and i did say at that time that they could be early earlier than the date of 1393 which is referred to by mcfurbish in the in the annals of mcfurbishy uh, looking at it now though and having looked for parallels for these buildings um I would think that, in fact, the date of 1393 is the more likely one. The building is clearly a longhouse. Um, it is, and I, in fact, I've, I, I can show you here some illustrations, some plans of buildings, for instance, one from Devon in the 13th, 14th century date of longhouses, foreign buildings, which incorporate this longhouse idea of having the dwelling at one end and the animals down at the other end. And uh, you may remember th this sketch here, for instance, of the, the, the building on Doombrishia does show such a longhouse 
with again the the um, the doorway in the middle of the long wall and down at one end this narrow drain going out of one of the gable ends and that seems to be a buyer drain to take where the animals were tethered down at that end of the building. So in other words this was a style of medieval building Yes, and in, in both these islands? Uh, yes it seems so but it, it was yes but uh, it's interesting in that it is not the style of building which you had in the North Mayo area up to the beginning of this century where um, animals were kept in the long houses but in that case the drainage trench ran um, uh, across the main axis and went out in the two uh, the, the drainage uh, the drain at the end where the animals were went out in the long walls just in, beside the doors Martin, what have you found since you well, studied your, your, your I've been notes? able to uh, I've been able to confirm that the woodlice that were there. You remember there were there were huge numbers of woodlice down among the roots of the the red fescue and the sort of fibrous piece that was down there. Well, um, they are mainly uh, at least uh, a particularly common species, and and one that we might have forecast would have been there, and one that's pretty good at spreading too. Um, so that ties up, and that's, as I say, more or less what it would have forecast. We could go on now and we, we could look at um, what the genetic makeup of those, those woodlice is by comparison with woodlice on the, the mainland. Um, if you, Seamus was saying there about, about having a small sample of uh, his settlement, but if you think when that uh, stack was cut off, well, you also had a small sample of the population of woodlice in Ireland out on it. And that sample mightn't have been very much like the population of woodlice in Ireland if you just imagine that perhaps uh, a red-haired Irish couple were marooned out there, mm. well, you'd expect they're, they're, they're to find today that the offspring on that island would have a lot of red hair. Well, you could have that kind of situation, or, of course, you could have new forms of genes developing. And we could go on now, and we can look biochemically at uh, those, uh, those genes. And... Well, Doonbridge is very interesting, and it could form part of a system for looking at gene movements in populations. I put it to you, would there be any purpose now in both of you going back to Doonbridge? Oh, a tremendous amount in that uh, we simply made, uh, examined very briefly the buildings on the, on the site there. We took some very rough measurements of it but obviously to do a proper detailed survey and examine the site in detail this is without ever doing any excavation uh, simply to survey the site properly would take quite a few days work and it's uh, I know I, I had rather cold feet even after coming in but it's uh, the interest I would yes very much like to complete that job you, Martin. Well, uh, the, the the main importance of all this was always archaeological, and and uh, it's just valuable that a biologist can can go on these kinds of things, just in case something shows up, and particularly to make records. And yes, I would like to go back, and I would like to improve the records I have. And if Seamus can screw up his courage to going back there again, and opportunity presents itself, maybe sure I'll be with them. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.